The recording that you're about to listen to is a talk from the City Bible Forum. We would appreciate you respecting our copyright by not making copies of this talk or altering the content in any way. We hope that you find the material beneficial. If you would like more information on the City Bible Forum, you can visit us on the web at citybibleforum.org. Well, good afternoon, folks. Uh, I don't think I need to update you on what has happened uh, since Saturday morning. It's interesting, I was away for the weekend and didn't get much in terms of news and then got home and, whoa, it was all, it was all on, all happening. Um, what was interesting is that uh, when they, uh, they changed the Opera House into uh, blue, white and red, um, and then there was a, a tweet put up by our Premier, Mike Baird, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Quite a few people grabbed hold of that. It's a, it's a beautiful little line. Uh, uh, SBS News had it on their website or their Facebook site. Uh, people have grabbed it. I suspect that many people don't know where it comes from or what it's really saying. It's, it's a very profound quote from a... Well, I'll, I'll come back to it at the end of the talk. Um, it, it does say something, though, about the light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it, although in the last week you could kind of feel like, well, the light is a flickering shadow because the events that have happened are obviously very dark. Uh, it's hard to imagine today. I just, I just, as I walked up with a friend from uh, down at our office, just walked through, up through Pitt Street, a beautiful sunny day, everyone's out enjoying themselves and that, and yet... If you look in other places, the world is a very dark place. I was just thinking back through the, the, a couple of generations, and that is my grandparents and certainly their siblings had life shattered by the First World War when there's hundreds of thousands, particularly young men, just massacred in the trenches. My, my parents' generation are a little bit older, had life disrupted by the Second World War. I can remember, I'm old enough to remember... Um, in the, even in the early 70s, we were still talking about nuclear annihilation and the Cold War and, and that kind of thing. That was very much the buzz. Last year, I went to Cambodia and went to one of the, the killing people. And those things happened while I was at high school. And so, you know, on the big scale, and now we've got this problem with, well, what people would call religion. Now, the, the way that the Western world, if I could say, the way that the Western world has, uh, has dealt with religion in the last... Well, as far back as I can remember, anyway, uh, has been to relativise it, and that is to kind of push push religious views out of the public square and onto the periphery. And by relativise, I mean you can believe whatever you want if you believe that it's true for you, as long as you shut up about it, as long as you kind of gag from debate. Now you can do that with Christians because. Well, Christians are quite polite. We just stand on the sideline and say, oh, excuse me, excuse me, can we say something? We're doing, hello, like, this is us. Uh, uh, relativism doesn't work when someone starts killing people because of their religious views. You can't kind of um, ignore that. Now, I know that our politicians and other uh, you know, leaders of the Western world have had to say, uh, this isn't really Islam. So... Uh, President Obama says it every time something happens. Uh, Tony Blair said it when the big bomb went off in London. David Cameron says it. Even Mr Abbott has said it. And I know why they say it, the political reasons. But I don't think it, to be honest, I don't think it fools anybody. 
Uh, these people are doing what they're doing because of what they believe about following the Prophet Muhammad. Now, you might say they're wrong in their understanding, but it's their version of Islam. So university uh, in Egypt a little while ago came out, the um, Islamic university came out and said, these people might be terrorists, but they're not heretics. So this is a version of Islam. If you've never looked, now I don't claim to be an expert on Islam at all, if you've never looked at Islam, one way you could do it is uh, on the bottom of your program is a website called Engaging Islam. Sam Green is, uh, is a Christian man, but as far as I can tell, he set out to, in a fair and careful way, explain what it is that Islam believes. But he will also give a Christian critique of Islam. But I've looked at it, I've been through the course, I think what he does is as far as I can tell, is quite fair in explaining what Islam believes. What I'd like to do with you... Let me go back. In terms of what's happening, I don't think it's purely a religious thing. You know, what, is, what has driven this? It's, it's, uh, there's a whole multiple layer of factors. Economic privation, social isolation, the clash of cultures, the young buffheads wanting to be adventurers, all that kind of thing. What I wanted to do with you today is not so much critique ISIS and what's happening. You know as much as I do. I only know what, what's there when I read the newspapers and, and so on. I thought, if you look through a Christian worldview um, at events like this, what difference does it make? How does the Bible explain these kind of actions and this kind of darkness? And if you did follow Jesus... What difference would that make to how you see it and how you see the world? So there's nine points on the sheet. I'm going to go through them. Um, the only analogy I can use is a little like drinking from a fire hose. I'm just going to download these nine points really quickly. I've put references there that if you'd like to read further in the Bible, you can. And then I'd like to be able to talk with you. Uh, you ask questions, make comments, happy to be disagreed with, um, etc. Okay. Okay, I see a few screensavers have gone on. I know it's lunchtime. I just, I'll say okay again, and a couple of you just kind of go, uh -huh, and then that warms the Okay, you ready? Uh, is, is that okay? Oh, fantastic. All right, man, they're with me, right? Okay, Russ, excellent. All right, first thing is this, compassion. As, as you look through the Bible's worldview, it would say weep with those who weep. That's what the Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians in Rome. And I've got to say, I know I talk loud and try and make jokes, I cannot imagine how hard it would be to lose someone you love, husband, wife, brother, sister, son, daughter. Bad enough to lose them in an accident or to an illness, but to have them just murdered this way by someone in cold blood, I just can't imagine how you cope with it. And there have been outpourings of grief here. There was a thousand people in St Mary's Cathedral the other night Numbers vary about St Andrew's Cathedral, 500, 300, uh, all sorts of prayer vigils, candles. The Bible says, grieve with those who grieve. Now, a wise man sent me an email, it's just alerted me when he saw this topic this week, to say, we do need to remember how selective the media is in terms of what they report. Because tragedies like this happen all over the world, all the time. I think it was last month, another 200 girls abducted from a school in Nigeria. They'll be sold as slaves. Uh, uh, there's five or six terrorist groups operating like IS in different countries, and these things happen all the time. 
Now, why is the thing in Paris being such a big deal? Answer, I think the answer is, it's not that it's a conspiracy, it's that France is a first world city like Sydney, and these are people like us, and these things are not supposed to happen, and there's that emotional, cultural connection, that's why the things in Paris have been reported, to, and also, there's lots of pictures, and the media loves pictures. So it's not a conspiracy, but you need to be aware that this is one little part of a very big picture. Uh, weep with those who weep, mourn with those who mourn. Next thing the Bible would say, and Jesus taught this very clearly, human beings do evil. And human beings do evil whether they are religious or whether they are atheists. Now there's been terrible things done in the name of Jesus, people wearing the Christian name tag. Um, there's been terrible things done in the name of Islam. But the atheists have done terror, like um, Joseph Stalin, Adolf Hitler, uh, Pol Pot, Chairman Mao, you know, millions and millions murdered. Now to say, to blame all religion for the terrible things that are done is like saying, well, Richard Dawkins must be a murdering atheist like Pol Pot or whoever. It's nonsense to group them all together. The question about religion is, that I'd ask, is are those who are doing these terrible, violent things today are they following directly the teachings of their religion or are they going against what has been taught by their, the founder of that particular religion? The reason I ask that question is because Jesus explicitly repudiates violence for those who follow him or in promoting his cause or kingdom. Now, third point, and that is Jesus says to Pontius Pilate, you can read it in John chapters 18 and 19, John's beautiful account of how Jesus is on trial before the Roman governor, and Pilate says to him, uh, you're a king. And Jesus says, yes. Well, let me read it to you. I'll read the, the words correctly. Uh, here we go. Jesus said to him, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest. So Jesus said, no, no, you, you can't advance Jesus' cause or Jesus' kingdom with a rifle or a spear or a bomb. You, you just can't do it. His kingdom is a whole different order. Um, so, uh, all right, let me keep going, and there may be questions. Number four, not only did Jesus say you can't advance his kingdom or his cause with violence or with weapons or whatever, Jesus taught, love your neighbour. What he says again and again is, love your neighbour as yourself. Now, some people hear that and say, oh, Jesus taught, love yourself. Well, no, no, not exactly. Jesus is saying, our default position is, we know how we would like to be treated. And he's saying, treat other people that way. And pretty much everybody I've ever met intuitively knows that that's right. We should treat other people the way we want to be treated. But Jesus went further. In fact, he said, not only love your neighbour, but love your enemies. Uh, to love those who don't wish you well. To love those who are not like you. Now, what does that mean? To act in their best interest. I don't think it means romantic feelings. It means to act in their best interests, even though they're not caring for you. Now, that's the point of the whole um, parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. We kind of lose the edge on it. The Samaritans and the Jews hated each other. The racial, ethnic, religious, historical, the list goes on. And the Samaritan, who would have been the bad guy in the Jews' eyes, is the one who takes care of the injured Jewish man. So Jesus is saying, um, love your neighbour, love your enemies... And race, religion, creed, doesn't get in the way of that. Uh, Jesus is very strong on that. Now, those, are, those have all been about 
kind of, if you like, personal relationships. The thing that the New Testament says divides, there's a divide between church and state. The New Testament, or the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 13, that governments are put in place by God to bring justice. So it, it is not right, he says they don't carry the sword for no reason. It's governments are there to enforce laws, to bring justice, to punish wrongdoing. Um, I, I got to hear um, Andrew Scipioni, our police commissioner, uh, who I think is a great man, I got to hear him speak at a, uh, a convention. Now, he's a Christian and uh, been police commissioner for oh, many years now. And someone put up their hand and asked him, do you think that Islam is a problem? Do you think that Islam is inherently violent? And I thought, oh, how would I answer that? But, well, he answered it in this way. He said, we don't profile people by religion or race or ethnic background. If someone does the wrong thing and breaks the law, we will arrest them. And I thought, oh, that's a great answer. He thinks like a policeman. Which is exactly, exactly what you want him to do. Yeah, but, yeah, okay, good answer. Uh, and that's how exactly how he should think, because he works for the government, and it's the government's job to bring justice. So a whole lot of those things about loving, turning the other cheek, all that, they refer to personal relationships. It's the government's job to have just laws and to enforce them. Now, the hard question is then, well, what do you, what do, you do? How do you fix this problem of terrorism? It, and it's, it's not easy. I mean, what do I know? I'm just a little baldy-headed guy who reads the paper out in the suburbs. You know? um, if you enact particularly tough laws and get rid of the civil liberties that we enjoy, you, they've won. Because the whole point is we enjoy the liberty and freedom we have so much. Is it education? Well, it seems a little patronising, doesn't it? All we have to do is educate people and they'll think the way that we do. One thing that mustn't happen is to alienate the vast majority of Muslims in this country who don't want this to happen. Um, it does seem to me, though, one of the key things is do the moderate Muslims, or those who are non-violent, have the will to help to stop the radicalisation? Are they prepared to do that? And there's a questions about that in the media today. Military action, does that work? Well, it doesn't seem to work very well in the last 20, 30 years. Well, what do you... Do, sending troops in, bombing, well, uh, I don't know. Now that's, at a, that's the kind of a national or a society level. Let me give you three more quick ones about personal relationship. And they revolve around, or they, they're Jesus teaching about fear, revenge and hope. All relevant uh, to this issue. And I've got the, um, the, the references there if you'd like to read them later. Each of these fear, revenge and hope are the way that Jesus teaches about them are all to do with believing, understanding that God is in charge. And if you actually believe that there, there is a God, a God who sees, a God who knows, and a God who one, one day will sort it all out, it changes the whole way we see things. So the media reports uh, these things, I think really they generate fear rather than calm it. What the media wants is an emotional response from you. Uh, and the way that they get it is by drumming up the danger. Statistically, you're much more likely to get killed in a car accident tomorrow than a terrorist event. Okay? What Jesus says about fear is comforting, kind of. Okay? Kind of comforting. So what he says is, if you're going to be afraid, you want to choose who you'll be afraid of. 
And in the context, uh, in Luke chapter 12, in the context of his followers facing imminent and severe persecution, where many of them would be killed, and he knew that that would happen, he says, essentially, this is a kind of a paraphrase, he says, choose carefully who you'll fear. Don't fear those who can only kill the body. Fear the one who can send you to hell. Don't fear other people. All they can do is kill you. And yet God holds your eternity in his hands. Now, isn't that comforting? Kind of. Okay? Yeah. He says, you will all be afraid. Choose who you'll fear. Um, The next one also relies on the fact that God is in charge and God will sort it all out one day. He says, do not take revenge for wrongs done to you. Trust the judgment or the justice of God. Apostle Paul writing to the Romans. Uh, What he means is, it's not that the follower of Jesus, if you're wrong, if someone hurts you, damages you, does the wrong thing, it's not that that doesn't matter. He's saying, it's not for us to take revenge. We, We should leave that to the justice of God because he knows people's motives, he knows what it's all about, leave it with him. But he does say you can be sure that there will be a judgment day where each person will be judged, every one of us. Which means that you can leave it with him. And then, number eight, to not grieve. If you follow Jesus, if you belong to him, you need not grieve as those who have no hope. In the end, for the worldview that leaves God out of the picture, there is no hope. We all end up here. We can put it off, we can not think about it, we can deny it, but we all end up here. Look, listen to what the Apostle Paul says uh, to the Christians in, in Thessalonica. They were Thessalonians. Uh, it's a city now, it's actually quite a big city uh, in the northern part of Greece. He says to them, to these people that he loves who'd become followers of Jesus, he says, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. See, he's saying they've had people they love who've died. He, um, he, knows, he doesn't say that they won't grieve. He just says, uh, don't grieve like people who have no hope. They're, even in the face of death, for the follower of Jesus, there's hope. Now, hope in the New Testament isn't like just wishful thinking. You know, oh, I hope... Pick a random. I hope we beat the All Blacks one day in the rugby. Okay, if you're a rugby follower, you know that. Wish, just wishful thinking. I hope my hair grows back. There you go. That's my. Actually, I hope it doesn't. Cause it's such a hard time. For me. Anyway, no, sorry. Uh, it's not hope like that. It's hope is I know what's coming and I'm looking forward to it. But the way it works in the New Testament is this: it's an event that happened in the past, and we know that it happened, that affects the future. And the future hope reaches back to the present and changes things. What's the hope built on? He says, well, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. So that Jesus died to pay the penalty for all the wrong that we've done, for the evil there so that God can forgive. And he rose again to show that he's conquered death. And he'll come back again. Now, he's saying that even in the face of death, you can have hope. You still grieve. Grieve with those who grieve. We'll, we'll still grieve over the loss of people we love and, and heartache. You don't grieve as those who have no hope. Okay. And now, sorry about rushing through this, but I only have time for you to comment, ask questions. Back to that um, 
uh, the Mike Baird quote, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. It's actually a quote from uh, John's Gospel. And if you open the program and have a look on the left-hand side, you'll see on the right-hand side is my nine points. If you want to have a, a further think, uh, have looked up, look up references. But you notice um, verses 4 and 5, John's Gospel is written, the first 18 or so verses are what you might call a prologue, um, an introduction, an overture almost, that pick up the big themes in John's Gospel as John tells the story of who Jesus is, what he said, what he did. And you notice in verse 4, he calls Jesus the light. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That's where the quote comes from. And in, in John, light isn't just kind of a physical thing that kind of the light's on the light. It's a moral thing. And that light is life and being with God, and God is the one who gives light, and darkness is evil and hiding from God. And if you read through those quotes there from John, and say, see, he came to those who were his own, he came to his own people, the Jewish nation, and they rejected him. In fact, you read on, they killed him. But the whole point of John's Gospel is this, that the light isn't out, that the light shines in the darkness, and Jesus has conquered death, and he will come back one day now the challenge for each one of us is a personal challenge in this because as John writes or as Jesus says as he is recorded um, in John's gospel the question for each one of us is this there is darkness in the world and I'll be honest there's darkness in our hearts or mine, you might want to search your own heart there's, there's a darkness in our hearts so the the great question for each of us is, how will we respond to God's light now? You see what uh, John chapter 3, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, and Jesus called himself the light of the world. But people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. The light shows us for who we are and what we do, and some people will run from it. Says, but whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they've done has been done in the sight of God. And God calls us to come to the light and to find forgiveness and life and joy. And one day he will sort out all of this mess and darkness. Uh, if you're interested, if you've never read John's Gospel, if you're interested in finding out more, we could... Uh, be very happy to arrange someone to sit down with you and read John's Gospel. It's called it the Word One to One. This is reading through John's Gospel, questions, comments, talking together. Uh, Russ can tell us how to do that in just a moment. Now, Russ, we're going to do something a little different, aren't we? Yeah. yeah. Folks, we've just thought, um, I don't know if you, you may not be used to people praying, but given what's happening around the world, given the heartache in Paris and beyond, that we might ask someone to pray... Uh, the idea of, you know, grieve with those who grieve. So Paul's going, Paul's going to lead us in prayer um, and then questions, comments, that kind of thing. So, Paul, please. Dear God, in passion, we think of people mourning the terrible loss of life in Paris. It's hardly inevitable. 
It's interesting that it takes uh, the good things in life and the easy things in life rarely make us think deeply. As I say, I don't know if I've ever heard anyone say, I just had a fantastic holiday and I've come back you know, a changed person. But it's the, it's the hard things in life make us rethink. So events like this make us think what really matters. What um, I suspect this will probably harden some people uh, in thinking about God and faith and what's it all about and they'll take the opportunity to throw the whole lot out and it may make others stop and think about what they really do believe. Because, for example, Islam and Christianity cannot both be true. Now, they could both be false, but they cannot both be true. Uh, and you see the, the, the vast differences worked out. So... Pray for Paris, yeah, it's a good idea. But it's it's things like this that will jolt people, I hope, to rethink. And, and just to too, as far if uh, like first of all, I've uh, not asked the question correctly, or if you want to kind of come back and ask Al a follow up question, please feel free to do so. Um, based on the events of this weekend, the next question was: uh, Are people allowed to defend themselves um, from a biblical perspective? I'm assuming I mean physically, not with arguments. Is that what yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, a man asked me this morning, what's the biblical uh, position on uh, self-defence? Okay. I've always found running away works quite well. <laughs> um, what is it? Now, some, uh, some Christian people would, uh, would be pacifists, and that is that you should never use physical force uh, under any circumstances. I don't think the Bible is pacifist. Uh, so the Bible certainly allows for governments to use force to uh, enforce the law to implement what's right. Uh, Romans 13 says they don't carry the sword for nothing. Uh, in Luke chapter 3, uh, some Roman soldiers come to John the Baptist who's preaching about turning around and coming back to God and they ask, what should we do in terms of what does um, repentance turning around look like for us? He doesn't say to them, stop being soldiers. He says to them, be just, only you know, do what, only take the right amount of tax, don't be greedy, don't... You know, so, um, you can be, you can follow Jesus and be in the armed forces, uh, police, that kind of thing. It seems to me that uh, what, the, what the New Testament says is wrong is revenge. Now, revenge is you've hurt me, I'm about to hurt you back. 
but using as much force as is necessary to protect yourself or particularly to protect someone else seems to me to fit with the flow of the Bible. Whereas it, it is right to restrain evil. I, I think that's right. Now it says force in proportion, uh, etc. But particularly standing up for the weak, the poor, the defenceless, uh, definitely I think that's the heart of God. Um, next question given by SMS is um, if God is in control he says why does it allow these things to happen big question isn't it yeah if God's in control uh, why didn't God just reach down and stop those things uh, how to answer to um, okay God takes humanity very seriously and in the Bible what you see is that God creates real moral agents or decision makers with real consequences. So we ask, why doesn't God just stop the terrorist attacks? Well, okay, God stops that and then um, someone's going to shoplift the same day so God goes, ah, don't do that and then um, someone's going to commit adultery and ah, stop that and then, um, well, I felt like telling a lie. So... All of a sudden, well, do we actually get real will and real decisions to make or not? And God's decided we do. Now, the cost of that is the damage that we do to one another. But what God said is he'll hold us accountable for how we treat each other and what we do. Now, why does God allow particular things to happen? Uh, well, ultimately, he will bring good from it somehow or we will see his purpose one day. And so the story is particularly told in the Bible where people do evil things with evil actions and God is able, and you see God's plan later, God is able to bring good from it somehow. Uh, if you've never read the story of Joseph in the Old Testament, Genesis 37 through to Genesis 50, it's just one of the greatest stories ever written where God, you have evil actions, the family tries to kill their younger brother, sell him to slavery, God brings ultimately good from it. And the other great example, of course, is the death of Jesus the most evil act of all time, and yet it's the love of God and God brings good from it. So I think those two come through. God's in control, have been good from it, and it's also the cost, if you like, of God making real moral beings who make decisions and will be held accountable. Someone might want to push back on that? For another yeah, thing. somebody actually did send uh, just on that. Um, just make sure I get it right. So... Uh, does that mean that we're always going to see the good that's going to come of something in our lifetime? Uh, I think the answer is no. Not, not necessarily. You, um, you may, I, I suspect that many of us, if, if, if we follow Jesus, if we trust him, will have things happen in their life and do not know why. So you know, if you've been coming along for a while, I've mentioned my dear sweet mum who, you know, everyone thinks their mum's a saint, Okay. And the difference is my mum really was. Right? <laughs> uh, mum's got Alzheimer's. And she's gone. She's mum's a vegetable now. You know, like and she was only in the mid-70s when she got it. And why like why is that? And she's a Christian lady, loved the Lord Jesus for fifty years. Why has that happened? I I don't know. Remember, you don't grieve, you do grieve, but not as those who have no hope. So I, we won't always see that. 
happened to someone you love rather than having happened to yourself. Um, how do you grieve? Well, there's, there's the grief and sadness, but it, but you know, as a apologies, it's not the last word. It's not the end. And so you, you grieve now. But So, for example, with my mum, you know, it breaks my heart, but I know it's not the last word. He's promised one day the new creation, where there'll be no more mourning or crying or pain and God will wipe tears from the eyes and that. And I think... It's not good, but this isn't the end. My poor old dad, who says he's an atheist, it's a whole different perspective there. Dad has no hope. There's, there's very different ways of seeing the world. Now, I still love him, and, uh, but, you know, but we, there's very different worldviews there. And so it, it just, it's, not, it's not the last word, it'll be all right. But you notice, Jesus weeps at the tomb of Lazarus in John chapter 11. John chapter 11, even Jesus weeps as he sees the heartache in the world, and so it's okay to grieve. The recording that you have just listened to is from the City Bible Forum. For more information about City Bible Forum events in your city, or to order other talks, please visit citybibleforum.org.